Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our next guest, Dr. Katrina Fury is a board-certified adult psychiatrist who, interestingly, during her medical school years, showed particular interest in neurology and OBGYN. Ultimately, she combined her interest in both fields and now offers women's mental health. She is one of the only psychiatrists in Connecticut offering psychotherapy, medication management, and expert consultation for women with depression, anxiety, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, birth trauma, and menopausal mood and anxiety disorders. Besides, in 2022, she was asked to join Access Mental Health for Moms Connecticut. In this role, she is one of four perinatal psychiatrists offering psychiatric expertise and consultation to medical providers across Connecticut, treating women for mental health and substance use conditions during pregnancy and up to one year after delivery. Welcome to our podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So in a previous episode, we discussed that mental health is now the number one cause of maternal mortality in the United States. That is why I thought seeking input from a mental health expert with particular knowledge in this area was necessary. Dr. Fury, would you please tell us about the Access Mental Health for Moms Connecticut program? Sure. So the Access Mental Health for Moms program is relatively new. Um, I believe it got started about two years ago, maybe maybe even less than that. Um, it is a, a statewide effort run by DEMAS, um, wherein um, much like the Access Mental Health program for youth, which the state has, um, medical providers of all specialties. It's it's primarily targeting OBGYNs, midwives, um, and people in that uh, that realm. But medical providers of all specialties can call the hotline, um, which is one eight three three nine seven eight six 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 seven between the hours of nine o'clock and five o'clock Monday through Friday, except for very few major holidays, and be directly connected to a psychiatrist whenever they have a question about managing the mental health uh, needs of a pregnant woman or a woman up to one year postpartum. Um, So let's say a mom comes in and she is tearful um, and describing some symptoms of depression and screens positive on something like the PHQ-9 or the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. Um, if the OB is concerned, wants to start medication, but maybe doesn't know where to start, they can call the hotline, speak to one of us, and we can advise them. We don't take over their care, but we advise the OB. And then, um, or whoever else is calling, pediatrician, even other psychiatrists or APRNs, emergency room doctors. I would imagine an anesthesiologist could call if they had a question. Um, and then what's really awesome about the program is we also have resource officers on staff. So these are tr- expertly trained um, providers who can also help connect women to treatment. 
So let's say, you know, the OBGYN says, you know, I've been managing this patient, but I feel like her psychiatric needs are greater, you know, outside of my scope. I think she needs more than I can offer. Then our team can take over and help connect that person to treatment, depending on where they're located, their insurance status, what language they speak. Um, and they can also connect them to therapy. So it's been a really amazing program. Um, and I believe it's based off of a similar program up in Massachusetts. So we're just getting started, um, but and we're hoping to grow. Yeah, I think it's phenomenal that this kind of access exists because the, there is definitely a need with maternal mortality, with mental health being number one cause of maternal mortality, having access to guidance, it, it seems to be essential. Uh, the webpage is actually very good. People can access that webpage going to accessmhct.com. And I got the following statistics from there. 20% of postpartum fatalities in depressed women are due to death by suicide, and 75% of women who screen positive for depression do not access treatment. How do these statistics compare to non-pregnant women during their reproductive age? So first, I think it's important to just acknowledge like, wow, those statistics are pretty scary, right? Like 20% die by suicide in the first year, that's a that's wild. That's really sad. Um, and so many women who screen positive aren't able to access treatment. Like what is going on? There's so many holes um, in terms of access to treatment and, and what we're doing to help support moms. Um, so the data I could find about this um, came from the CDC. It was just published in April of 2023 um, when they published their NCHS data brief analyzing suicide mortality in the U.S. between 2001 and 2021. So it's a little outdated, you know, but it takes a while to do these analyses. Um, and it was written by Matthew Garnett and Sally Curtin. Um, so again, what we know is that men continue to be at a higher risk of, of completing suicide than women. Um, those rates are felt to be about three to four and a half times higher overall. Um, and, and, and I will say this data, it's hard to parse out once they look at the women, they don't really separate pregnant postpartum or non-pregnant women. So that's really hard data to find. Um, but, you know, the suicide rates in men still tend to be higher. We believe that's because men tend to use more lethal means like gunshots um, rather than women whose uh, most common means of attempting suicide is by overdose. So while that can be fatal, gunshots tend to be more fatal. Um, but within women, um, you know, I guess overall, actually, the suicide rates peaked in 2018, uh, rate of 14.2 out of 100,000, which was up from 10.7 out of 100,000 back in 2001. These overall rates declined through 2020 to 13.5 over 100,000 and then increased again sharply by 4% uh, to 14.1 out of 100,000 in 2021. That 4% increase is the quickest increase the, uh, that we've seen based on this 10-year data. Um, and again, you have to imagine that the COVID pandemic and all the stressors that came with that likely contributed. Um, within women in particular, in 2021, between the ages of 15 and 24, so now we're getting into some reproductive years, um, the suicide rates in women in particular, again, they don't parse out pregnant, postpartum, or not pregnant. It's just all women that they captured. The rate was 7.4 out of 100,000. And in women ages 25 to 44, so again, reproductive years, um, the rate was 6.1 out of 100,000. So way less than 
20%, right? Like way, way, way less. So I think that's, you know, really important to acknowledge. Um, and then in terms of access to treatment, so based on that data, only about 25% of women who screen positive end up getting connected to treatment. That's also significantly less um, than what the National Institute of Mental Health reports that in 2021, 61% of adults over the age of 18 who met criteria for major depressive disorder were connected to treatment. So that's a huge, that's a huge gap. There's some big gaps here. Yeah, so definitely the COVID pandemic definitely ha had a, a huge impact in uh, mental health in the United States. And, you know, part of what I'm thinking here is that I was just reading an article in a newspaper a couple of months ago, and the title was Suicide Date that's reached a record high in the U.S. in 2022, provisional data shows. And I'm wondering if our increase in maternal mortality due to mental health is really a clash that exists between poor national general mental health and the a major life event happening or a stressor, which could be, you know, the baby could be a major change in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's hard to say for certain, right? And I'm sure it's multifactorial. I'm sure there's a lot of things contributing, but I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, it's no secret that the U.S. mental health care system is really broken. You know, I think back um, in the 60s and 70s when there was a big push to deinstitutionalize mental health care. So to close down a lot of the inpatient psychiatric hospitals, which we called asylums, and try to get more treatment into the community, trying to get more people, you know, living their normal life in the community, connected to care, but not living away, locked away from society. Like, that sounds great. But the problem was the pace at which these community health centers opened up, like never, never caught up to the pace at which these institutions were shut down. Um, and so that continues to be felt across the board. Um, we know that in general, uh, maternal health care is not as great in our country compared to other countries. You know, even if you look at the um, the medical side of things, um, you know, rates of C-sections, follow-up care, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, then we get into things like paid child care leave or, you know, how expensive it is to find child care. I mean, there's just so many stressors um, systemically that I think go along with welcoming a child or expanding your family that likely contribute. And then we also know that the childbearing years are the the time in which all women are most likely to be diagnosed with their first mental health episode, whether those women get pregnant or not, that's the age. And that, that's similar to men, um, you know, in your, in your late teens, early 20s for men, um, in your 20s and 30s for women, that's when you're most likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition. But then around pregnancy and childbirth, you know, with those hormonal swings, the, the rate of, you know, experiencing a mental health condition drastically goes up, you know, one in five uh, to one in seven, depending on the data you look at, uh, women will experience a mental health condition in that time frame. So the, the rates of it are just incredibly high. Um, and I think our understanding of why that is um, remains to be uh I guess, totally figured out. You know, I think there's a lot of biological causes we're still trying to understand as well as systemic environmental um, causes that, you know, doesn't help, right? Like when we think about the risk of developing like any disorder, uh, there's always some genetic 
component, right, that increases your risk. And then oftentimes it's that plus an environmental stressor that really tips you over the edge. Um, and having a baby is incredibly stressful, even under the best of circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely more research is needed. And given that this is the number one maternal uh, reason for maternal um, death, uh, maternal mortality, we definitely need to keep on looking uh, for what are what is driving these maternal mortality. So I think having access to uh, the healthcare, it's going to be extremely important. And talking about access to healthcare, what are the common barriers that prevent pregnant individuals with mental health issues from receiving adequate health care, leading, leading to these increased maternal mortality rates? This is a great question. You know, um, like we just talked about, there's not enough providers out there, you know, anywhere from, you know, there's not enough outpatient uh, clinics, outpatient providers, outpatient treatment centers. There's not enough doctors, period. You know, like it's incredibly challenging to navigate the system. It's incredibly challenging um, to navigate the insurance system in particular. You know, insurance, uh, I think we all have our uh, issues with different, you know, with the insurance system at large. But in terms of mental health treatment, um, they still don't, uh, I guess, invest in mental health care the same way they might in other types of medical care, like orthopedics or, you know, things like that. There's still a lot of discrepancies there. Beyond that, um, these women are also, you know, once you have the baby and you're discharged, that's kind of it. That's all we kind of do in this country. You get a six-week follow-up appointment at your OB. They have started implementing these screening uh, forms, which is great. But before that, and that was very recent, I remember being in residency when that um, became a national initiative. So it's very recent. Beyond that, that's really it. You don't get any more check-ins. You know, I know in some European countries, there's nurses who come to check on you all the way up through a year. Um, and you're having to juggle, you know, what are the priorities when you only have so much time in a day and you're exhausted, you're, you're sleep deprived. Um, who knows what issues might be going on with your baby. The schedules are unpredictable. Childcare is enormously expensive. You might not have family around to support you. There could be transportation issues, language barriers. I mean, there's just so many things that can go into it. I also think in our country, there's still a lot of stigma about mental health conditions in particular. And then especially in pregnancy, there's so much stigma and so much shame. And I think that has got to contribute to why it's so hard to get connected to treatment. Yeah, definitely a lot of variables surrounding these um, issue of uh, maternal mortality uh, driven by mental health issues. So what are the, the main contributing risk factors to the increase in maternal mortality rates related to mental health? So women with um, postpartum psychosis have a 5% chance of suicide and a 4% chance of infanticide. So these numbers are incredibly high. Um, again, one in five women who screen positive for perinatal depression may actually have an underlying bipolar disorder. And we are really concerned about bipolar disorder, especially in women who present with their first episode of mania or hypomania in the context of pregnancy or with an episode of psychosis. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind. Um, and patients with a prior psychiatric hospitalization have a 27-fold increased risk for a postpartum suicide attempt. Um, and postpartum women are more likely to have experienced depressed mood in the two weeks before suicide than other women who are not postpartum. 
Um, that's not entirely clear why that might be, but it is thought that maybe the lack of sleep, stress from infant care, and I would imagine the physiological hormonal changes might be contributing, as well as the underlying disease process. Um, I also wanted to mention that women with uh, intimate partner violence are at a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk of completing suicide, and women with a substance use disorder have a 6.2-fold increased risk of postpartum suicide attempt. Um, that risk nearly doubles for women with both psychiatric and substance use disorders. Um, so there's a lot of risk factors to keep in mind when you're trying to assess the risk for suicide and a really good quality um, assessment, you know, is needed. And, and if there's ever any concern in that regard, certainly referring um, the, the, the patient to, uh, you know, the emergency room for a, a formal evaluation is definitely needed. Yeah, that is ex extremely important to, uh, to know these risk factors, because if, if, if any physician or any family member can notice any of the classic symptoms of these uh, conditions, then they could seek help for for their uh, significant one. Um, in a previous episode, we, we discussed maternal mortality and how at our institution, one of the things that you mentioned was um, the use of substance use disorder, that it's, in, uh, it's uh, associated with an increase in uh, suicide. So at our institution, we have been working on a, a multimodal strategies to decrease the number of opioids that the patients consume during their hospital stay, as well as a decrease in the amount of medications that the patients are discharged with. So what else would you recommend in an attempt to decrease this uh, opioid epidemic or in general, uh, you know, issues with mental health? Oh, gosh, yes. The opioid epidemic is uh, just that, a, a huge epidemic. Um, I think in the in the case of postpartum pain control, again, this isn't my area of expertise, but I would imagine that it's important to balance, um, you know, a woman's need for pain relief, you know, especially if they've had something like a C-section or a traumatic delivery. Um, you know, she will be in pain and she will uh, require some pain relief, at least in the short term. Um, I think it'll be important to balance that with the risks that we know come with prescribing opioids, especially, um, you know, longer term prescriptions. So I think keeping those prescriptions short is important. Um, making sure you always assess for a personal and a family history of addiction is really important. Um, and I think just keeping in mind the other stressors that the woman might be facing, at, you know, at home. Is there any risk of um, housing issues, food insecurity, intimate partner violence? Does she have enough support at home? Um, you know, things like that. Um, and sort of getting an idea of, you know, how does she cope with stress? And, and will those things be accessible to her in the postpartum period when the demands on her are going to be so much higher? Um, I think all of those things are important to keep in now, going back to some of the things that you mentioned, there is this one uh, article, a great article that actually comes from our, our institution, was published in um, American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the title is The Collision of Mental Health, Substance Use Disorder, and Suicide. As you mentioned, the presence of substance use independent of an actual substance use disorder is a significant risk factor for suicide. That basically means, as you mentioned, that a patient may recur back to using alcohol. And just the fact that they go back to a substance use increases their chances of completing or committing uh, suicide. So 
are there any uh, screening tools that help predict the patients that are at higher risk for relapse or developing the noble substance abuse? I'm not aware of a specific screening tool that has been studied and, um, you know, specifically for the postpartum period. I would imagine that assessing the risk for relapse or developing um, some substance use or misuse or abuse is kind of similar to what you would do outside of pregnancy and then perhaps just keep the stressors associated with pregnancy in mind. Um, so again, you know, the things that I would think about would be what is their personal relationship with things like alcohol, cannabis, um, other recreational drugs? Um, have they been using any in pregnancy or not? You know, we do know that pregnancy tends to be um, a time at which a lot of women are able to abstain from using substances, whether this is recreational like, you know, recreational social drinking or um, in a in a more sort of uh, substance use disorder kind of way. You know, we see a lot of women able to um, avoid illicit opiates, you know, often with the help of things like methadone or suboxone during pregnancy. But we know that postpartum can be a high risk period uh, for relapse. So it's important to keep these women engaged in treatment. Um, some other things I might think about when assessing the risk would be, um, you know, what what is their family history like? If they have a co-occurring primary mental health condition, is that stable? Is that being treated? Are they connected to treatment? And, and if so, how soon can they follow up after having the baby? How frequently are they following up during the postpartum period? And do they have enough support at home? And if not, what sort of uh, programs are available in the community to help support the moms at home during that uh, really high risk time? Yeah, that, that is great. And, and what I was looking with is like, if there is any way that we can actually start seeking out help for our patients before they are even uh, discharged. And that is why um, I wanted to bring up this, um, this study that came out. Uh, it's a paper that came out that, that is the title is Association Between Postpartum Pain Type, Pain Intensity, and Opioid Use in Patients with and Without Opioid Use Disorder by Dr. Lim and her uh, research team. And they described that patients, particularly those with opioid use disorder, utilize effective pain categories that, that is that patient described their pain as awful, uh, bad, um, had higher pain score and consume more opioids than patients that use other pain category descriptors, just as basically saying that their pain was dull or aching. So, my takeaway from the study was that the patients that tend to use these effective way of, um, you know, effective pain categories to describe their pain, basically it's a cry for help. Uh, so what do you think about the strategy of using the way the patients describe their pain as a way to, uh, try to start seeking for help, like cognitive behavioral therapy or, uh, trying to in uh, implement other uh, non-opioid strategies to the treatment of the patient. I think using, you know, non-pharmacologic and non-opioid strategies to control pain is a great idea. Um, you know, I think depending on the setting and depending on the patient's buy-in, again, if a woman's just had a C-section, she's still in the hospital, it's probably not the time to start doing some uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. But perhaps, you know, before delivery, you know, leading up to that, these would be good strategies to sort of get on board. Um, maybe in the 
further along in the postpartum period, uh, those strategies could also be helpful. Um, but again, I do think it's important to, you know, walk that line delicately and weigh the need to treat a woman's pain adequately uh, with the methods that we have available um, with, you know, these other alternative approaches, like with acupuncture or, um, you know, physical therapy, you know, things like that. Um so what role does access to mental health care play in reducing maternal mortality rates? So the Access Mental Health for Moms program in Connecticut is based off of the MCPAC for Moms program up in Massachusetts. It's sort of modeled off of that program. So I know at least in Massachusetts and Connecticut, we are making a big effort um, to try to reach uh, moms at this vulnerable time. And I'm hoping that other states are doing the same. Um, and I I hope to just kind of see those uh, initiatives and those types of programs continue to grow. Yeah, I agree. I think education is definitely uh, key. Now, we've talked about uh, before in other podcasts, I've talked about, unfortunately, uh, racial disparity is another issue that we are experiencing in the, in the United States. Are there any disparities in access to uh, that contribute to the problem? I think... Access to mental health care is a huge part of uh, the problem. You know, maybe not the the biggest part, but I certainly think it's an important part. Um, you know, like we talked about earlier, so many women who screen positive for symptoms of depression aren't able to access treatment. And that's just a travesty. You know, how are they supposed to feel better if they're not able to access treatment. So certainly I think um, figuring out uh, all the barriers that might be contributing is certainly important. Um, and we do know, unfortunately, that there are certain uh, racial groups, um, socioeconomic groups, where this access to adequate mental health treatment in the postpartum or even perinatal phase um, is even harder. I think that's just another example of, you know, the intersectionality of uh, different um you know, societal factors that can sort of add up and make access to treatment harder. Um, we certainly see that play out in this population as well. Yeah, I agree. That's a it's a very complicated uh, topic because there are again so many variables. Um, I learned that besides being a psychiatrist with a particular interest in women's health, you are also a podcaster. And you have a podcast uh, called Analyze Scripts. This next question will probably be in the ballpark of your psychiatry and po podcast area of expertise um, because part of what you do in your uh, podcast is analyze what Hollywood gets right and wrong in terms of, you know, basically the medical field. So we know that patients may have a preconceived idea of how they think their labor should be or how they should be taking care of their, their babies or how they should feel about their babies. So how do these cultural or societal factors contribute to increased maternal mental health, if, if that is even a thing? Yes. Um, so we, I do have a podcast, Analyze Scripts, um, which is a lot of fun. We're having a lot of fun analyzing the, de the depiction of mental health in uh, TV shows and movies. Um, and I would definitely think that, you know, the media, even things like social media, Instagram, TikTok, definitely would contribute to, um, you know, the way people think that their birth experience should go or maybe they wanted to go. And oftentimes it does not go that way. You know, I've seen on social media a lot of like packing lists for what you should bring to the hospital or, you know, laminated birth plans and things like that. Uh, a lot of which is, is pretty out of touch with, you know, what your actual experience might be. Um, and I think there's, you know, a lot 
lot of depiction in the media of, you know, a birth, even if it's difficult. And how, you know, I think most women expect that once they have a baby, you know, they're sort of instantly connected. They're instantly in love with the baby. They get that euphoric feeling and kind of nothing else matters. And while that does happen for some very lucky women, uh, the fact, you know, the truth is that, that that doesn't really seem to happen for most women. I don't have any data, you know, at my fingertips, but I always try to remind my patients, you know, like, when was the last time you met a total stranger and just were instantly in love? Like for most people, that doesn't happen very often. And I try to just remind them of this when they're, you know, meeting their newborn in case they don't experience that because that's totally normal. And that bond and that attachment grows with time. Um, and it's important for women to just sort of show themselves some grace um, and lower their expectations, I think, for how everything's going to go. That doesn't mean, you know, you shouldn't be well informed about the labor experience. Certainly, I'm an advocate for things like, you know, um, you know, labor uh, education classes, Lamas classes, having a doula involved, you know, all of those sorts of things are important. Uh, but also to just keep in mind that a lot of what happens is totally out of your control. Um, and it's important to be able to trust your medical team um, and be able to trust in yourself and the people around you to advocate for yourself during that experience. Um, but not to set the bar too high and imagine that it's going to be just, you know, totally euphoric and, um, not have any bumps in the road because for most people it's a really difficult experience and that's totally okay um, and there's a lot of time to bond with the baby afterwards yeah, maybe maybe one recommendation will be to uh, disconnect from social media in the immediately postpartum period i would imagine that you know these depictions i don't really know if they directly contribute to uh, increased mental health issues in the postpartum period, but I can't imagine they help. You know, again, when women are struggling with depression and anxiety, especially after having a baby, when they think, you know, this should be the time where I'm at my happiest, uh, you know, they're feeling really down on themselves. They're really criticizing themselves. And so, you know, comparing their experience with what they're seeing either in the movies or on Instagram or TikTok, if, you know, what they're looking at is like this sort of false perfection, that's not going to help anything. You know, I often encourage my patients to like, you know, mute Instagram or TikTok or, you know, try to avoid those, the, that type of content, maybe focus on like cute little animals or, or funny videos or, you know, things like that. That seems like a, like a great um, advice. Now we're getting to the end of the, the podcast and um, I want to end, end the, the podcast with one thought and then we'll go to Dr. Fury's top five recommendations to improve mental health screening and decrease maternal mortality due to mental health. As anesthesiologists, and, and here's my thought, as anesthesiologists, the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that patients' uh, experience of pain uh, can be a predictor of uh, postpartum depression. So the patients that feel uh, severe pain, independently of the mode of delivery, will, will tend to have a higher risk of having postpartum depression. So our task as, as anesthesiologists is to actually try to pay, to manage our patient's pain independently of the mode of delivery, whether it's a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery. We should focus on the pain because we know that is definitely something that we as anesthesiologists can help the patients with. Now, with that, I want to end the podcast with the uh, Dr. Fury's top five recommendations to improve mental health screening and decrease maternal mortality due to mental health. My top five recommendations. Let's see. This this might be kind of tricky to, you know, narrow down into just five things. Um, you know, I think number one would certainly be, you know, improving maternal health care in general. 
um, overall, you know, having better uh, outcomes, um, decreased mortality overall. I think all of that can only help with maternal uh, mortality due to mental health as well. Um, so I think just improving women's mental health care and the, you know, across the board in our system would be really important. Um, I think, you know, investing in more uh, community resources, I guess that would be my second recommendation, you know, actually having, you know, more clinics and more psychiatrists out there and more training in this area so that more psychiatrists practicing in, you know, general adult psychiatry would feel more comfortable treating these kinds of patients. Um, that is really important. I think improving the access to that type of treatment through, you know, better insurance parity, um, better payments to mental health professionals overall, and somehow just streamlining it so it's easier for women to, um, you know, access the treatment when they need it. It's not so such a hurdle would be really important. I guess my fourth recommendation would be just investing in some better, you know, societal support of moms, you know, including, um, you know, paid family leave, um, affordable child care, you know, all the things we hear about politically and, and economically in, in the media. I think all of that's important and intricately tied in here. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would recommend would be more education overall, just from, you know, from across the board, you know, to to lay people, people without medical background, just about, you know, like what what sorts of things are, are red flags for a brewing mental health condition and someone you care about who's just had a baby or who's pregnant, all the way up to, you know, other medical providers, um, better understanding what happens for women uh, in the context of delivery and how that affects their mental health. I think increased education across the board is really important. Um, and I guess a lot of sixth one, you know, again, focusing on the substance use piece and, and making sure that those women are also are connected to treatment and are able to stay in treatment. And I think would also be really important. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your contribution to our obstetric community. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to put this episode together. Um, I think it's right in line with what I was just saying about increasing education um, to you know, physicians and, and providers and all different specialties and how important that is. So I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope that this was helpful.